Well, good morning, everyone. Glad that you're here. Welcome those that are joining us online and all of you at Vincennes. Hey, big question of the day. Have you ever asked God to do something big in your life? And no, I'm not talking like the bills are due and you're short on funds. And so, God, can you just give us a little bit more money so that we can, we can pay the bills? And not like, hey, I'm having trouble with my kids right now. My daughter, every time, just rolls her eyes at me when I have a suggestion for her. God, would you please have her stop rolling her eyes at me? No, something, something big. Let me just kind of preface it with this question. Have you ever asked God to do the impossible in your life? Something that you thought was just unthinkable. That if you were to have requested it in public, people would have laughed at you. Something impossible. Okay, we start this series today. I'm really excited about it because it's called Rise Up, and it takes a look at all the moments and miracles that Jesus had where he... He wakes someone up from the dead. It doesn't happen very often in the scriptures. It happens three or four times. But those moments are so powerful because it is a reminder to you and me that Jesus Christ, through his power at work in our lives, can pull off the impossible. It's going to take us right to Easter. And invite your friends, invite your families. There's invite cards on the chairs that you, you're probably sitting on one right now if you can't find it. So just grab it and keep it warm, I guess. I don't know what you've been doing with it. Hand it to a friend, invite them to come to services with you. And then the following week after Easter, we're going to have a depth to life service for you who have been waiting to be baptized for a moment in your life. will be prepared to give your life and come from death to life and have the power of Jesus Christ and his spirit at work within you and to be baptized, living for him, forgiven of sins. Now, really, the central idea of this series is this. Only God has the power to take what we think is dead and make it alive. It's only God that has the power to take what we believe is dead and make it alive. And it comes from this scripture that Jesus looked at his disciples when they were wondering, who can be saved? It seems so difficult for anyone to be saved. I mean, we're not good enough. We're not sinless people. We're not perfect people. Why would a righteous God welcome us, welcome us in? And Jesus looks at them in Matthew 17 and says, with man, or 19 rather, with man, this is impossible. But with God, let's just say it out loud, all things are possible. Like You don't stand a chance if you try to do this on your own. But if you get God involved, that's where the power is really found. Here's the teaching. The teaching is this. There are some things that you cannot do, but God can do anything. Amen? There's just some things that you can't do, but God can do anything. Do you, do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that? Because the stories that we find of death to life, where Jesus awakens the dead and brings them back into life, these are stories of belief. They're stories of trust. They're stories of faith. Now, let's ask the question again. <laughs> Have you ever asked God to do something impossible in your life? If you haven't, why not? It didn't stop Joshua in Joshua chapter 10 from asking God to do the impossible. See, he's pursuing his enemies, God's enemies, really. Joshua is the commander of the Lord's army, the Israelites. And as he pursues his enemy at night, he catches the enemy off guard in the morning. And so he routs the enemy. They are slaughtered there on the battlefield. But there are so many, so many men 
And Joshua only has so much time. And he recognizes that if it goes dark, the enemy just might get away. So he prays this audacious prayer. God, would you make the sun stand still? And God says, sure. And he stops the moon and he stops the sun. What an impossible request. You know, it didn't stop Moses from having this anticipation that God would do something miraculous as they're in a rock in a hard place. The people of Israel, the Hebrew people, have just escaped Egypt. Pharaoh is pursuing. Moses and God's children now are at the seashore of the Red Sea, but they can't pass beyond it. And they recognize that the Egyptian army is pressing down on them. If they stay there on the shore, they are decimated. There must be some way out. And they're starting to panic. And Moses has the nerve to say, you just hold on. God can pull off the impossible. Listen to Exodus chapter 14 of what Moses says. Don't be afraid. Stand firm. And you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today. I love this line. You'll never see them again. And you know what everybody thought? Yeah, right. Verse 14, the Lord will fight for you. You only need to be, catch this phrase, you only need to be still. You ain't going to be able to do it on your own. Moses, don't try to wiggle your way out of it. Your methods aren't going to work here. You're going to have to just wait on God's miracle. What happens? The sea parts. God heaps up the waters on each side. He dries out a pathway so that the Israelites can walk through it and march their way to the opposite shore. And just as Pharaoh and the pursuing army comes through that same pathway, God closes up the Red Sea and he decimates the Egyptians, never to be seen again. How about a man named Naaman? 2 Kings chapter 5. He is not a believer in God, and yet he hears about the power of God through a prophet named Elisha. And he is afflicted with a terrible disease called leprosy, a disease that is rotting his skin off of the bone, a slow way to die. And he decides, I might want to consider a last-ditch effort here. I've tried everything else. Might as well try this powerful prophet named Elijah and see if his God will work out. Because I've tried them all. And Elijah says, you go down to the Jordan River and you dip yourself seven times into that river. And on the seventh time, you will rise and your skin will be perfect. You will be healed. And to Naaman's credit, this unbeliever does exactly what God commands him to do. And on the seventh time, he rises out of the muddy Jordan River and he is completely healed. Actually, the scripture says that his skin is like that of a young boy. He has found the fountain of youth. God does, when he does a miracle, friend, he does it complete and whole. And Naaman crawls out of that water, and here's his testimony about an all-powerful, impossible-working God. I know, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt now, like I don't have any more doubts now, that there is no God anywhere on earth other than the God of Israel. That's our God. How about Luke 1, where Mary stares at that angel in disbelief and says, how can I give birth to God's son when I am a virgin? And and the angel doubles down and says, oh, you're not the only one who's pregnant. Your cousin Elizabeth is pregnant too. And you remember, she's old and she can't have kids. And Mary says, how is this possible? You remember how the angel responds? Let's just all read it out loud together. Luke 1, 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. Just a reminder, friends. Nothing is impossible with God. You know, for 20 years in ministry, I've been told that the greatest threat to the church are these outside forces, like things like 
No one believes in absolute truth anymore. So therefore, it's hard to get a foundation of God's word when no one believes in absolute truth in society. I've been told that, that because the church has become more me-centric than God-centered, that will be the death of the church. I've also been told maybe it's a political influence that might creep into a church or a political, uh, some kind of persecution that we might face. But friend, I don't, think, I don't think the threat to the church is from the outside. I think the threat to the church is right here on the inside. The threat to the church is we have simply come to a place of disbelief that God can pull off the impossible. That God can make the sun stand still. That God can part the Red Sea. That God can heal the diseased. That God has the power to raise the dead. Hey, Mark 5, I invite you to turn there with me. It's a gospel message of Jesus and a couple of stories of impossibilities. It involves two daughters. One is the daughter of a man named Jairus. The other one is the daughter of God Most High. Mark chapter 5, verse 21. Jesus is trying to retreat from the crowd. And every time he does that, he gets in a boat and he crosses a lake. But every time he does that, there's another crowd waiting for him. Because he's at the height of popularity. Everybody wants to see Jesus, speak with Jesus, maybe get a glimpse or a witness a miracle of Jesus. And of course, there's a line for people to be healed by Jesus. And Jairus is there, a man pushing his way through the crowd. He's very wealthy. He has authority. He is known as the synagogue leader. He, he basically runs, manages, and uh, maintains the synagogue where people come to worship a very honorable, prestigious position. And so maybe there's a little bit of entitlement here because the crowd is large. And Jairus just kind of muscles his way to Jesus. Look at verse 23 of Mark 5. Jairus, he pleads earnestly with him, with Jesus. My little daughter is dying. That's crisis. That's a crisis. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So, of course, Jesus went with him. Hey, parents, a few things probably panic us, like that of a sick kid. No, 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 not like sniffles. Extremely sick kids. Have you ever been there where you've begged? You've begged God that you could just take their place? When one of my boys was about a year and a half. He was in the back seat of my car, and he was extremely sick. Now, listen, my driving would make anybody sick, but he wasn't that kind, he wasn't that kind of sick. He was, he, was, he was throwing up blood, and I remember stopping the car and pulling over and looking in the back seat, and he had this look on his face of just, Daddy, help me. And he couldn't communicate what was going on. I, I was freaking out. My wife wasn't with me. I was panicking. I, I couldn't figure out what was going on, so we got him to the hospital as quickly as we could. And I remember pleading on the drive there, like, God, just stop this. Let me just start throwing up. Let me be the one that is sick like this. Let me be the one that can take on this illness. And we got him to the hospital. He spent a couple days there, fully recovered. He's doing fine. I think every parent knows that feeling of desperation, of hopelessness, of God, this is beyond my control. And anything beyond my control, I've got to just allow it to be in your control. Jairus is no different as a parent. And he has this little girl of age 12 that brings him a ton of joy. And he's like, God, if there's any way to make, make this come out, 
to a good way. I'm desperate for a miracle. I'm in crisis mode here. I'm losing hope here. And so he does He does what many of us do. He drops his pride and he comes before Jesus and he begs for the impossible to happen. What does Jesus do? Jesus is like, yeah, let's go. Let's take care of this. And the crowds, the crowds are, they're still around him. And so everyone's kind of crowded around. Luke's gospel, his eyewitness account says, the crowds are so thick that they almost crush Jesus. Like they're just on top of Jesus. And so everyone's kind of jostling Jesus and hope is about ready to turn for Jarius. He's lost hope, but he's like, well, Jesus is on his way. I know he's taking his time, but Jesus is on his way. But then there's this huge interruption that gets in the way of this miracle. Mark 5, look at verse 25. And a woman was there. She was a subject to bleeding for 12 years. She suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and spent all that she had. And yet, instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his, his cloak. Because she thought, if I could just touch his clothes, I will be healed. And immediately, immediately, her bleeding stopped. And she felt in her body that she was freed from the suffering. This is a, this is a, this is a different daughter. A daughter that has been suffering for 12 years. While there is the daughter who has brought great joy to Jairus, who is now dying, this daughter has been adopted by God. You see, this affliction that this woman has, has put her in a place where she's been ostracized from society. She has some kind of affliction where she is consistently daily bleeding, depleted of injury, energy, probably depleted of, as hope as well. And, and Mark makes it clear, this has cost her everything. This has cost her everything. She's tried every doctor, every elixir, every experimental drug. She has tried it all, and she has grown worse instead of better. It's cost her money, but beyond that, she has this private suffering, much different than Jerry's public suffering, and she is going through this alone because of this affliction. She's been cast out from society, ostracized from society. She's not welcome in town. She's not welcome to worship in the temple. She's not welcome to come to a friend's house. She's not welcome to be around family. She is not, well, this is social distancing to the extreme. You know how all the mental health issues have happened with our social distancing? Imagine, imagine her mental state. Imagine her feeling of worthlessness. Imagine the low self-esteem that she must have because this disease, Mark says, has ruined her life and she is embarrassed by it. She's so embarrassed by it that she keeps it private. She's so embarrassed by it that she doesn't wanna, she doesn't wanna plead to Jesus because that would make her go public. She probably has her head covered. She's in the jostling of the crowd and she's just trying to wiggle her way up to Jesus and she decides, I won't touch Jesus. You wanna know why she won't touch Jesus? That would have made our savior unclean important to understand. In Jewish customs, that would have made our Savior unclean. She decides in a last-minute ditch effort, I will touch the hem of his garment. Warren Wearsby, who's a commentator on Scripture, says it is more like not faith. It's more like a superstition that she has. I've tried it all. I've done everything, but I haven't tried Jesus. I'll just touch the hem of his garment, and immediately she is healed. Hey, can I just let you know that this woman didn't have a whole lot of faith, okay? Maybe I'm speaking to some of you right now. Yeah, yeah, I believe in miracles. Yeah, yeah, I believe in the apostle. Yeah, okay. But you don't have a whole lot of faith when it comes to, listen, Jesus wasn't her first choice. Jesus was her last, her, her last resort. 
Am I preaching to anybody today? Anybody in this room where Jesus ain't your first choice? Like you're here like going, I'm kind of, I'm begging for something privately right now. And the reason why I'm in this room right now is because I am pleading with God about something. Here's the teaching to you. Desperate situations have the power to deepen your faith. But I guess on the reverse side of that, desperate situations also have the power to deplete your faith too, I guess. It's just a matter of how, how you have a belief in God that he can specialize in the impossible or not. And Jesus taught, Jesus taught us it doesn't take a lot of faith. Guys, it doesn't, it doesn't take a lot of faith for, for God to, to get involved into your mess. It doesn't take a lot of faith. Jesus actually puts it like this in Scripture. He says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, he's saying, you don't have to have big faith, just a little bit of faith that you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible. Now catch this. For, for you, for you, nothing will be possible. He said, you can move mountains with a mustard seed size faith. Now, listen, if we can measure, if we can put a metric and measure our faith here today, we wouldn't all look the same. We'd, we'd be at different levels. Some, some might have this gigantic mountain of faith. Others might have this molehill of faith. Some people might not even represent faith at all. But what I'm telling you is it doesn't matter how much faith you have. God can take that little bit of feeble faith and he can do something absolutely major with it. He can take your mustard seed size faith and he can move mountains with it. And this woman came with a near superstitious faith, a mustard seed faith, and a last-ditch effort. She comes to Jesus, and she took what she had to him, and he did something incredible with her, and Jesus healed her. All right, back to the story, Mark 5, look at verse 30. At once, Jesus realized the power had gone out from him. That word power is the word dynamo, which means dynamite. That's where we get the word dynamite. And once Jesus realized the power had gone out from him, he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? <laughs> mind you, mind you, he is nearly being crushed by people. Verse 31, you see the people crowding around you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, meaning she was healed, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, uh, that word fear has to do with amazement, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, I wonder when the last time she heard those words. Jesus is reminding her why no one else wants you. You're a daughter of the Most High. Your faith has healed you. Go in peace. And be freed from your suffering. When Jesus asked who touched me, he knew who touched him. He knew, he knew exactly who touched him. And he didn't do this for his benefit. He did this for her benefit. You see, she wanted to walk away. She wanted to come to him first privately. And she wanted to be healed privately. And she wanted to walk away privately. But that wasn't going to remedy anything about her. That would have healed her. But that would not have, now catch this, that would have never restored her. And so Jesus calls her out. You've been healed. But who was it that was just healed? Can you imagine the kind of story she would have to do, the kind of convincing she'd have to have to say, I've been healed, family. I've been healed, friends. I've been healed, pastor. You can let me into your world now. And they'd say, no, 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 no. You've tried everything. It's cost you everything. No one can heal you. You can't be healed, sister. But when Jesus calls you out and he says, you've been healed, he not only heals you, which is just one part of the miracle, the more important part was he restored her. 
because her life was all but dead. Dead to family, dead to friends, probably dead mentally, maybe dead spiritually. She was isolated. She wore the stigma of loneliness and wore the labels of being unclean. And yet Jesus takes her little faith and she is able to have a mountain moved in her life. And she is not just healed. Friends, she is made whole because when God does a miracle, he does it complete. Good for her. Uh, but there's still a crisis, isn't there? You ever felt this way? Oh, uh, cool. I'm glad, I'm glad God's taking care of all your needs. That's great, brother. How about mine? Because there's Jer- Jer- Jairus is still in the story here. He still has a dying daughter at home. And Jesus is kind of just taking his sweet time now doing some other things. And in that time, Mark 35 tells us what unfolds. While Jesus is still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? Why bother the teacher anymore? That's got to be the most hopeless statement of the scripture this morning. Why bother the teacher anymore? You ever, you ever thought like that? Like, why bother? I know he can do the impossible, but why bother? Because I've been asking for it for a long time now in my marriage. My marriage is broken. It, it just doesn't seem to be able to get back together again. Love seems to be lost. It's not working out. Hey, do you believe that God could be working in your waiting right now? Do you believe that he can do the impossible? Maybe it's your job. Why, why bother keep praying for a job? I mean, after all, I'll never have a career that I can really find some purpose in, really find happiness in, really find enough money to make ends meet. It just seems like one dead-end thing to the next dead-end thing. Hey, friend, do you believe that God can make a detour when you feel that you're at a dead end? I mean, why bother? I'll never overcome this addiction. It'll always be a part of my life. I find sobriety for a little while, but then... Then I slip back in. I've tried every group. I've tried every program. I've tried it all, but I just can't break away. Why bother? And do you believe that God can use your brokenness to minister to other broken people? Do you believe that God can use you in the middle of your brokenness? It is often the hardships of life that turn ordinary people to do extraordinary ministry. Hey, why bother sharing my faith with my friend? He has a hard heart anyway. He's told me never to invite him to church. He's told me he doesn't want to hear about that Jesus stuff. Why keep praying for him? Why keep inviting? Why keep telling him about Jesus? Why even bother? Well, do you believe that God can soften even the most hearted heart? He did a good work in you, didn't he? Don't you think he can do a good work in your friend? Some of you say, why bother continuing to serve? Why, why keep on serving at church? No one notices. I never get the praise. It doesn't make a difference. I don't feel like a difference maker. It doesn't seem to add up to anything. Why bother? Do you believe that God works in mysterious ways? And then any time that you serve him in Jesus' name, your works will never come back void. Jesus overhears Jerry's friends. Why bother? Why bother the teacher anymore? And Jesus hears that. And he becomes in tune to that. Verse 36 says that Jesus responds to everyone who hears the words, why bother the teacher anymore? And he says, don't be afraid. Here's the command, just believe. I guess if you were to sum that up in today's kind of line of thinking, it would be there are no desperate situations. There are only desperate people. 
that Jesus has everything under his control. And he's just looking for someone who believes that. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Hey, this, that's, that's, not, that's not a statement like, everything's going to work out as long as you don't have no in your heart. That's not Jesus saying, well, you need to hope for the best and plan for the worst. No, that's not kind of this line of thinking of maybe it will all work out in the end, hopefully. Now, Jesus isn't saying here, hey, guys, just believe that everything will be okay. Let me explain this word belief. We don't do this very often in here because it often sounds like we're in a language arts class and everyone, I don't like language arts. I didn't like it. I didn't like my four years of Greek in school. I didn't like that. So I'm going to put you a little bit of pain like I sat through a little bit of pain. How about that? That word believe is a verb, and we get it from the Greek word pustuo. It just simply means belief. But verbs have three parts to them. They have a tense, they have a voice, and they have a mood. Anybody checked out on me already? Okay. The tense is it's a present tense. What does that mean to you? Well, it means that the word turns to right now, believe. Right now, believe. It has a voice to it. The voice is active. It refers back to the person that's telling you to believe, the subject. Who's telling us to believe? Jesus is telling us to believe. And so right now, the sentence comes to just out of that one word, right now, believe in me. It also has a mood. The mood is imperative, which means it is a command. Right now, believe in me. Do this right now. Okay, let me just translate that little word in a sentence. Jairus, if you want your little girl to be healed, then you must believe right now in me because I have the power to pull off the impossible. Because Jairus, if you had the power to pull off the impossible, you wouldn't have nudged your way and pleaded with me, begging me on your knees. If your family had the ability to pull off the apostle, uh, impossible, you wouldn't be here in front of me. No, they've all said, why bother the teacher anymore? Jairus, I am your only hope because it is I who have the power to take what you think is dead and to make it alive again. I just showed you what I can do with this dear woman. Believe right now in me. I have the power to give your daughter life. Hey, do you, do you believe that? I mean, honestly. Honestly, do you believe that? If you were Jairus, would you have said, Jesus, let's keep walking towards the house because I believe right now that you can raise my daughter from the dead. I have an eager expectation like Moses that you're going to pull off the impossible. Do you believe that? You know, the gospel writer Mark has set this story up with some other stories, and it looks like this. Jesus has the power over nature. Jesus has the power over over demonic influence. Jesus has the power over disease, and now he's about ready to top it off. 
Jesus has the power over death. And Mark keeps on subliminally asking the question, do you believe that God can pull off the impossible? Because a lot didn't. And most in the crowd couldn't understand it. So verse 39 Jesus goes in and he says to them, why all the commotion and the wailing? Uh, Because she's dead, Jesus. No, 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 the child's not dead, she's asleep. Verse 40, but they laughed at him. Hey, it wasn't the first time God was laughed at. Probably won't be the last time. Many since the beginning of creation have been blinded to God's power. Abraham and Sarah in their old age. God says, I'm going to do a unique thing through you. You're going to be the patriarch and matriarch of of an everlasting, eternal nation that you will have so many kids that they won't be able to even count them. They haven't had a kid yet. She was barren, and they were old as the hills. And yet, when God told them they would have a kid, Sarah, she laughed at God. And then she had a son. And you know what they named him? Isaac. You know what it means? He laughs. Who laughs? God laughs. Because he always has the last laugh. When people don't believe. And when Jairus is told by Jesus, oh, your daughter's not dead, she's just asleep. All those grieving laughed because their perception was it's over but not to Jesus. Jesus is like, she ain't dead. She's just asleep. They're like, Jesus, how she's asleep? She's asleep because I'm going to go in there in her room and I'm just going to wake her up. That's how Jesus. Verse 40, look at the second half of this. After he put them all out, you know, he t- you know what he did? He got all the doubters out of the room. He got all the doubters out. And he took Peter, James, and John with him. Those were probably the most faith-filled men that he had in his encampment. And he took mom and dad in with him. And after he'd put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. Verse 41, he took her by the hand and said to her, Taliath kum, it's Aramaic, which means little girl, I say to you, here's the words, get up. And immediately, immediately, not like she was in the hospital a few days, She swooned back to health. Not like they had this experimental drug. Immediately. She wasn't weak. She wasn't drowsy. She didn't need time to recover. She gets up and she begins to walk around. Mark says, she was 12 years old, by the way. And everyone in the room is completely astonished. Verse 43 Then Jesus gave them strict orders not to let anyone know about this. You ever wondered why when Jesus does a miracle, sometimes he looks at them and says, shh, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody I'm Jesus. It's because his time wasn't ready yet. If this would have gotten out, people would have said, he is the king. Let's force him to be king. We're looking for a king. This is going to be the king. And they would have forced him to become king, like it or not. And then I love that Jesus, I love that Jesus is so cool in these kind of situations. What's the next thing he does? Hey, by the way, get her a sandwich. She's hungry. <laughs> like, I love that. Like, hey, uh, 
Back here, back here. I know she's up. I know she's up. She's hungry too, okay? So mom, go make something for her. Dad, why don't you go get something else too? She probably needs some water. They're all astonished. He's thinking she has needs, okay? <laughs> she's got needs here, physical needs. Do you believe what just took place? Do you believe that can still take place? Do you believe that God can make a way when there doesn't seem to be a way? Do you believe that God can take the ashes in your life and turn them into beauty? Do you believe that Jesus has the power to do a miracle in your life? Do you believe that? Too often we dismiss that God specializes in the impossible. And we think, boy, to believe that would just be fanciful. To go public with that belief would be idiotic. Because what if it doesn't happen the way I want it? Boy, I'll tell you what. You asked the woman who was healed, she would tell you otherwise. You asked Jairus and his daughter, and they would tell you otherwise. Because they were all convicted in that moment, maybe even in desperation with what little faith they had to believe in the only one who could pull off the impossible. And they came with this very simple belief that nothing is impossible for our God. Nothing is impossible for our God. There is a a point as a plane races down the runway where the pilot must decide to commit to the takeoff. Uh, In aeronautics, it's a speed rating. Every plane is different. It's called V1. It's actually called commit to fly. And by the time you hit V1 as a pilot, you must have put in your head that regardless of whatever problems might be on the dash before you, whatever you might hear around you, what smoke might be in the cabin, you commit to flying the airplane because it's safer at that speed in the air than it is to try to stop it on the ground. That doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And so intuitively, every pilot wants to apply brakes, keep the plane on the ground, work the problem, try to maybe, maybe try to work the problem out on the ground. No, no, no. The safest place is to rotate the airplane You're at flying speed, get into the air and get airborne, start working out the problem and try to bring the aircraft down safely. Pilots are taught over and over and over and over again to do that maneuver because instinctively it doesn't seem right to commit to flying. And I know you hear a story about impossibilities the unthinkable, and that our God is still the same God he was today as he was then. And you think, come on, friend, it's time to commit. Either he is that or he is not that. Either he is the great miracle worker or he is not the miracle worker. You see, Mark consistently adds on to the word belief. And in Mark 16, 16, at the very end of the gospel, he says it like this. Jesus proclaims, believe and be baptized and you will be saved. Do you believe that? Believe in Jesus, in his power. Believe in the one that accomplished the impossible. Believe in him and then have faith put it into action, pull back on the yoke, and commit to flying. And I know you've got problems. 
And I know you have all sorts of things in your life that you'd like to see restored and you're in crisis. Christ says, believe in me, commit to me. Friend, today, reach out to Jesus. You'll find healing. And it may not be the kind of healing that you're expecting, like healing of flesh or healing of mind, but it will be restorative healing. It's it's healing of soul, of strength, of spirit, something that is everlasting, not just temporal. Will you pray with me? Father, you're good to us. Simply may we be reminded that you have the power to pull off the impossible and that we need to commit to you. Even with what little faith we have, and maybe there is more doubt than faith today, you will accept our feeble faith. And we are so grateful that you accept us right where we're at. So whether we find ourselves like this woman that's kind of superstitious, like, well, it's our last ditch effort, we'll come to Jesus. We find this man that boldly approaches you and begs for the unthinkable. May we recognize that you loved her, that you loved him, and that you love us. And that we are just as important as those two that we find in Mark 5. So Father, today, those who believe, may they commit and may they be baptized. And may you do the impossible in us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and we all say, amen.